This is The Reckoning. I'm Dan Gediman. If you live in Kentucky, there's a song that's part of the sonic landscape of the state. The song is Stephen Foster's My Old Kentucky Home. Published in 1853, it's been Kentucky's state song since 1928. And it's hard to avoid if you live here. They sing it in school assemblies. At University of Kentucky basketball games. It's used in all sorts of commercials, selling everything from fried chicken to bourbon to solar power. Hey, have you heard the good news about solar energy? And of course, every year, it's sung before the running of the Kentucky Derby. It's a song with a complicated history. And it has an odd relationship with Kentucky and its legacy of slavery and Jim Crow that has only recently been reckoned with. I think of it as a sonic monument to a segregated memory. And I think it's very important to understand how it became that. Emily Bingham is a writer from Louisville who's written a book about the song, which will be published in early 2022. It's called Singing About Slavery, My Old Kentucky Home. I interviewed her in 2019, before the BLM protests of 2020 inspired greater scrutiny of the song and its meaning. This led some to call for its abandonment as the state song, and for Churchill Downs to stop playing it before the Derby. I began our conversation by asking her how she perceived the song growing up in Kentucky. I was a horse-crazy girl, and so Derby Day was always a really happy and exciting moment for me. And so as a result, that pinnacle moment where the energy and the anticipation reach their apex and the horses step on the track and that song played, I think, you know, I certainly would have had very happy associations (laughs) with that, given that, you know, the crowd roars and, you know, the first notes of, you know, a really beautiful melody strike up. So I think I just would have thought it's a nice song about maybe Kentucky. <laughs> and, and when did you start to have any other thoughts or awareness of it? Well, the next thing I recall is reading Gone with the Wind, which I undertook to do, I think I was 12 or 13. And I recall coming to a passage toward the latter part of the book, and Atlanta is under siege, and uh, Scarlet and Rhett are in the parlor of Aunt Pity Pat's house in Atlanta, and everybody is very gloomy, but they sit down at the piano and they play My Old Kentucky Home together and sing it as a duet. And Margaret Mitchell printed in the book some verses that I'd never seen. And it's not the entire song at all, but it's verses about just a few more days for to tote the weary load, no matter twill never be light. Just a few more days till we totter in the road, then our old Kentucky home, good night. A few more days. 
it went straight to my mind that this was a Civil War song. That's why they were singing it, because it was about the Confederates that they, you know, were thinking of in defeat, making their way back. And I think the images in the movie have merged in my brain, but of these straggling, tattered men, hungry and defeated. So that's, then I, I just, that kept that, I think, for a long time, that it must be really about the end of the war and people feeling sad. And then what was the next progression of your awareness? So the next progression really didn't come until adulthood. I had moved back to Kentucky in the mid-90s. I had been studying American history at Chapel Hill in graduate school, and I was finished with all my courses and starting to have my family and writing my dissertation. And at the time, my husband and I started to host Friends for Derby, and I recall wanting to inform my friends about Kentucky's traditions. And one of the main things that I was excited to share with them was Hunter Thompson's essay about the Kentucky Derby being de decadent and depraved, which a lot of people didn't know about and thought was really funny. And we used to read it on the way to the track. But then I thought, you know, and then there's this song that we all have this emotion about. And maybe, you know, I should tell them about that. So... I looked up the full lyrics, and I just was really surprised. You know, I, I have to say I remembered kind of that there had been a scandalous word in the first verse, you know, in the original song, and that people weren't supposed to say that anymore. I kind of have a vague memory of that from childhood. But the song, when I read it carefully through, I realized that this wasn't a song about the Civil War. It wasn't a song about really a Kentucky home so much as it was a song about a slave being sold away downriver to die in the sugarcane fields. And also that it had been written in 1853. Like, I didn't know that either. So it was well before the Civil War. It couldn't have had anything to do with that directly. So it just kind of filed into my head that there was something strange about this song. I will say, though, that for years and years and years after that, I continued to sing the song and have the kind of emotions that I think a lot of people who look like me have when it comes on. My Old Kentucky Home is just one of dozens of popular songs written by the Pittsburgh-born songwriter Stephen Foster. At the height of his career in the 1850s, he cranked out hit songs, many of them for use in the blackface minstrel shows of the day. Songs like Oh Susanna, Camp Town Races, and Swanee River. But there's some evidence that by the time he wrote My Old Kentucky Home, he'd become interested in abolitionism, through the influence of a close friend in the movement. Stephen Foster had a draft of this song that was in a notebook that he kept. And the draft is has a completely different title, though the song, the melody, is almost what we have today. And so the there are parts of the song that are the same, but the chorus is Old Uncle Tom, Good Night. You've gone to a better land, Old Uncle Tom something along those lines. And 
this kind of made all the chips fall into place to understand that he was almost certainly inspired by the publication in 1851 and 2 of uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, in which a slave from Kentucky is a faithful slave, is sold downriver for his master's debts to Louisiana and at first lives kind of in certain amount of comfort as a domestic slave in the household of a rich man. But then when times change again, he is put out to plantation and works in the sugarcane field and is brutally treated and dies at the hands of a brutal sort of overseer, right? So that's the story of Uncle Tom. And it just very nicely tracks the basic outline of the song we know today of As My Old Kentucky Home, except that at some point along the line, the author, Foster, who was extremely sensitive to his times and very careful about what he published, he decided to take Uncle Tom out of it and make it a more generic song, less associated with one thing and certainly less associated with anti-slavery as a result, which was incredibly controversial at the time and might not have won him as many fans. But he also added this thing about weep no more, my lady, and, you know, we'll go to our Kentucky home far away, sort of a wishful, comforting, almost like a lullaby. My conclusion is that the anti-slavery content or association of the first draft was too hot. And it was not smart for him to probably put that in a song that way. There were plenty of Uncle Tom's songs going on in that period. People were composing songs relating to the story, but he chose not to. And I think, you know, what does that say? I I think he was thinking about his bottom line, which he really needed to do. He was not making a lot of money. So I guess what I would say is that he was aware of the controversy, and either he or someone persuaded himself that it was a better idea to be more neutral, I guess, in a very heated political controversy. It's hard to overestimate how popular and influential Uncle Tom's Cabin was in the 1850s, given how few people read it today. It was truly a blockbuster in terms of book sales, and it was also important as a kind of consciousness-raising tool, especially in the North, about the evils of slavery. But it also had a long-lasting second life as the raw material for all sorts of theatrical productions, which often used My Old Kentucky Home as part of the musical score. I think my big point for me in this project about Uncle Tom's Cabin is that, like many people in the 20th century, we you know haven't read the book, but a lot of people in the 19th century did, but a lot of people didn't. What they did is they saw shows and plays. It became the most produced theatrical piece 
in America for the whole half century or more after its publication. So every summer, if you lived in, I don't know, Dayton, Ohio, there would come through town a Uncle Tom's Cabin tent show where the story would be replayed on a stage with often a lot of great special effects and greyhounds and things like that to evoke the the drama and melodrama. And that is how more Americans over the years uh, ingested the story. And there was a anti-slavery cast to many of those productions, but there was also a lot of plain, flat-out humor and making fun of the characters. And, and My Old Kentucky Home, as a song, was played in many of these productions, including ones that were overtly, like literally overtly pro-slavery. So some productions were like, yeah, come laugh at Uncle Tom and all those people. And you would hear My Old Kentucky Home sung in that context as well. So it's, it's really complicated um, between you know, a sincere anti-slavery message and the way that it was experienced by a people who I think we have to acknowledge many Americans were not, they, they may not have liked the idea of slavery or especially the extension of slavery into new territories, which is really what the conflict was about fundamentally, but they weren't particularly comfortable with the idea of racial equality and in fact, most of them were very uncomfortable with that idea. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that there was a lot of fun being made and a lot of minstrelsy attached directly to a book that we think of as a manifesto for anti-slavery. So I want to back up. We started by talking about how my old Kentucky home is indelibly connected to the Kentucky Derby, that, you know, people all over the world who watch the Kentucky Derby have this archetypal moment every year where everybody pauses and they sing my old Kentucky home. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Derby for a second because it is this signature event that we have here. It's tied to my old Kentucky home and may have other connections to what we're talking about. So what is your understanding of sort of the origins of the Kentucky Derby as sort of uh, something more than a horse race? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. My research reaches pretty directly to the figure of a man named Matt Wynn. Matt Wynn was the director, I believe, of Churchill Downs, in the 1920s and 30s, and he was an amazing promoter, really. So the track almost went under, and he was part of a group of people who, who sort of saved it. So he went on to try to figure out, well, how to make, you know, this track profitable, and horse racing was, you know, kind of in its heyday, and there were a lot of problems at other tracks also, apparently, with, I guess, corruption. And he saw an opportunity to create an aura, an event, a brand around the Derby 
that had to do uh, with some of what we've been talking about, with a tradition, um, a Southern, I mean, you know, you can't, you know, there are all these plays and songs and, you know, even movies at this point about the Old South and how things were. And so I think he saw that um, people were hungry for that. There was a real market for that. So he said, you can come, you and all your friends, bring your friends, dress up, come. We're going to have special trains coming from the big cities uh, for this for this big race. You know, you can come put your foot in the South. You don't have to come that far. It's sort of a safe and pleasant way to experience this, this traditions of hospitality and uh, color. Uh, we're going to have mint juleps, which have an association for sure with the Old South, the Kentucky colonel on his front porch being, you know, served mint juleps by a black slave or servant um, in a white coat with, um, you know, branch water <laughs> All that. And we can deliver a sort of trip into the past for a weekend or even just a night. So you see it beginning to be promoted as a Southern experience. And this is also the time when, you know, tourism is beginning to, you know, rise and certainly train travel had gotten very good and people could get places easily. And it it really worked. He was he was a master. And he also spent a lot of time sort of lobbying. He would set up shop in New York City for months at a time and live in a hotel and have lunch every day with some sports writer or some, I don't know, some opinion <laughs> maker and and just, you know, keep touting it. So all the best horses started to come and all the best sports writers started to come and they would do feature stories and they would start getting – you know, sometimes by the 30s, they were having movie stars, you know, come. And and the whole aura at that time was very much like, let's create this Southern experience, an Old South experience. And my old Kentucky home was a part of delivering that. 65,000 turn out at Churchill Downs for the 71st Kentucky Derby, and a record amount is put down on the three-year-olds in this classic of the American turf. Even in the 90s, early 90s, when I moved here, I remember derby guests arriving in the airport to um, people dressed in hoop skirts handing out chocolates. And, I mean, this was very clearly a evocation of what you're coming in for is an association that's very tied to slave times. So let's back up for a sec. Um, So out in Nelson County, there's Federal Hill, the Rowan family plantation that has been turned into my old Kentucky home state park. Every summer since 1959, they perform the Stephen Foster stories uh, several nights a week. What is the historical connection between Federal Hill, the Rowan family, and Stephen Foster? And why on earth is all this hoopla happening there about this song? Well, right. So predating the adoption of My Old Kentucky Home as the theme song of the Derby was a movement among what I call boosters, like forward-thinking business people in Kentucky and Louisville who saw, again, like Matt Wynn, that this song was a um, attraction. It was a. It was. It 
people loved it still. It evoked these Old South, you know, it rang those bells in people's minds. And that was a really appealing um, way to attract visitors and attract positive attention to a state that still was uh, laboring under this, you know, we're very poor, uh, we have feuds, um, we have corrupt leaders, we had a governor assassinated. I mean, sort of this mayhem and, you know, fighting and gouging and reputation that Kentucky also had. So mounting this Old South version was an antidote, I think, in a way, uh, as a brand to Kentucky's reputation in the country. And so what they they knew um, was that there was this house in Nelson County where um, the family claimed that Stephen Foster had been inspired to write the song. And there was a journalist and uh, named, named Allison who was a Foster fanatic. He just believed that Foster was a genius. She was right. And he wanted people to understand that better because Foster himself had kind of petered out by the 1900 or so. His reputation was uh, pretty faded. And he started researching, you know, this story because he thought it would be a great uh, bragging rights, right, for, for Kentucky to have a place to celebrate Foster like that. He could never determine that Foster was actually there. But he had, you know, this family that said so. And uh, it is true. We do know from documentary evidence that Foster was related to the Rowans through his mother, and they were kind of distant cousins. And his sister, way back in the 1830s, had visited the Rowans, uh, both in Louisville and at Federal Hill, when she was a sort of a debutante aspiring, you know, on the marriage market. So the Foster family had a connection to Kentucky through that. And you know, through this lost sister who was way older than he was. He barely knew her. And she was quite musical, apparently. So that's that's the connection we know. Um, it's odd that in the intervening years, nothing was really said about Foster ever being there. But anyway, by the 1890s, late 1890s, turn of the century, this story began to get put out there more. And so young Allison, the name of this journalist, just, you know, kind of went with it. <laughs> and he started, he really helped start a statewide campaign to raise money to purchase the house from the last survivor of the Rowan family to live there. And they paid a, a pretty penny for the property, which was in very poor condition. And it opened in 1923. And it's not until the later 20s that the um, song really gets institutionalized at Churchill Downs. So anyway, they hire a director who used to be an editor at Lost Cause magazine, and he um, sets up shop for tourists, and thousands and thousands and thousands start to come through because it's the era of the automobile beginning to catch on. And as you can imagine, Barstown was not on any major train lines, so it really helped to access it that um, that people could drive themselves and go out for excursions from even from Louisville or places like that. 
And it just really profoundly changed, I think, the relationship of the state to the song because um, it was even after that that the state adopted the song as its state anthem. Let's talk for a minute about there have been periodic calls going back a ways, I think, mostly from black folks to either uh, abolish the song as the state song, to not sing it at the Derby, um, or have had other problems with it. Can you talk a little bit about controversies about the song in the past decades? Uh, So as early as 1915, I believe is one of the, the first I've seen really clear objections came from a group in Boston. Uh, there was a, a, a black publisher, a newspaper publisher there who joined with some other activists, white and black, who objected to school children being forced to sing the songs of Stephen Foster and others that contained racial slurs that they said subjected their children to ridicule and teasing and, and you know, sort of merciless, demeaning um, experiences in, in public school setting. And they were actually successful in getting the school board to stop using the book that contained these songs. And so that's that was a victory for the black community there. But the backlash to that decision was was quite, um, you know, I mean, people were just horrified. How could you ever say that these are anything but gentle, lovely songs that remind us of the humanity of the slave? There are American sort of treasures. These are the songs that are at our heart as a nation. And so, and it is true that, I mean, among the blackface minstrel materials, you know, some of, you know, Foster's songs that were, that we're talking about, My Kentucky Home, his sort of lachrymose songs, his, his sorrow, sad songs, these, um, you know, were meant to, to, to draw the tear to the eye, right? And they were sometimes used comically, but they were also used pathetically, right? So Blackface Minstrel Show audiences loved both to laugh and to cry, and Foster was kind of feeding that that market that way. But anyway, I think, um, you know, the calls to abolish it are, have been so many and have gone on for so long, but have been so little attended to. <laughs> what have been know? the major critiques of it here? Specifically here in, in Louisville, or no, in Kentucky, in well, in Louisville because we use it the Derby, but it's also the state song. I think that it, going back even to the 1920s, before it even was the state song, an important educator here, Joseph Cotter, uh, went to visit Federal Hill, and he just was like, "Look, this song isn't isn't." really speaking to the present <laughs> times. And he wrote his own version of the song that sort of took out the, oh, this is the fate of the black man uh, suggestion that I think the song leaves many with. And then I think um, during the civil rights era, there was just a general 
you know, like, come on, you people, you have to stop using the, I mean, at this point, we're only singing the first verse and then the chorus. And so the first verse contained, you know, that first line, the the D word, using quotes to refer to the slaves, the darkies, right? You know, people were really sick of hearing that. So um, so they were, you know, at the same time, the issues in front of the black community in the 50s and 60s were so great <laughs> that I think for many it was an irritant. It was a it was something that was obnoxious. But, you know, when you compare that to being able to walk into a store uh, and try on clothes or go to a school that had, you know, decent resources. I mean, this or vote, you know, this was not the highest, <laughs> the highest concern. And so then in the early 70s, Churchill Downs was forced to, you know, reconsider using the song in its original form or even the first verse in its original form because national advertisers were being pressured by the NAACP about this song and also all kinds of other, you know, offensive old material. And so they decided to substitute the word people for the D word. Through the, I think, late 50s through the 60s, it was printed in the program with that other original, the original lyrics. lyrics, right? Yeah, and I think also there was a congressman from Nelson County named Frank Shelf. He got very exercised in the fifties about Dinah Shore, who was a white woman um, who had a variety show, successful network television show, and she sang "My Old Kentucky Home" on her show at one point and substituted. I mean, there have been, you know, everyone from Paul Robeson on up, performers, especially black performers, had tried to substitute and done that. But she did that and Frank Shelf, you know, kind of came on with a ton of bricks and tried to pass a law in Congress <laughs> to uh, preserve in their original form all such lyrics and from any kind of bastardization <laughs> that that... Dinah or her friends might want to impose. What are your thoughts about um, thinking of this song as in any way problematic for uh, the state song, the song we sing at the Derby, um, a song highly associated with both your hometown and your home state? Yeah. Well, it's been an occasion for me to think really deeply and gradually over time see ways in which not only was I blind to the backstory of this song and the way it reinforced many very destructive and demeaning characterizations of black people, specifically as happy, content and at least in, you know, their state of Kentucky and their state of their home plantation, that that characterization, I think, is so devastating and so 
self-destructive of respect for what slavery was, uh, what its legacy is, that this cognitive dissonance that I had of like, I've been singing the song, but I didn't know what it was about. And it's really about slavery. It's about a slave being sold down south. How did we get here? So for me, the journey has really been that question of how did we get here to a place where almost nobody knew that that's what the song was about. Or if they knew it, they were able to to just suppress that knowledge. Or even if they knew it, it didn't matter that it was about that. Those are the things that, to me, get at the larger questions that our society is wrestling with about awareness of the long legacy of the night, the, the pre-Civil War, the slave era on our country and on the people, white and black, of this country, and how systems like a Kentucky Derby, where how would anyone think that this, there's anything wrong with a song that 150,000 people get up and stand up for? How, why would you ever second guess that? When it is so institutionalized and so, you know, so ritualized, right, and so honored. I have black friends and acquaintances who are extremely disturbed that it gets honor on the same par with the national anthem. That just really doesn't make any sense to them. And I see why now. But it's taken me a long time to really see how that and how so many other things that we have not been able to perceive, even though they've been right in front of available, the information available right in front of our eyes as wounding and continuing the wounds that slavery uh, imposed on our country. And so I think of it as a sonic monument to a segregated memory. And I think it's very important to understand how it became that. I think the process is just as important as the uh, decision of exactly how to handle it, because I don't think unthinking change is going to heal as much as thoughtful change. And I just hope we really have a an informed way to think about and go through some of what I think I've had to go through with the song myself of honoring it, loving it, tearing up at it. And finally, for me, I mean, for me at this point, I can't do that anymore. But that's been my own process. And I just don't know really how we can celebrate a song that is about slavery, the way that this song um, is at its root and as much as it has been appropriated um, for things that we might find appalling as well as things that we might find completely benign, like, oh, everyone loves their home and can feel the sense of nostalgia for home, I, I, I still think we have to rethink if it still fits with what we want to be as a state, as a community. Yeah. Emily Bingham's book, Singing About Slavery, My Old Kentucky Home, will be published in early 2022. (laughs) 
The Reckoning was written and produced by me, Dan Gediman, with producer Nancy Rosenbaum. We had legal assistance from the Dinsmore and SKO law firms. Our theme music was composed by Jacory 1200 Arthur. Special thanks to WFPL in Louisville for providing Derby Audio. This episode was made possible by a generous donation from Sandy Phillips and Mary Grissom. If you'd like to support The Reckoning, you can do so in a couple of ways. You can make a tax-deductible donation of any amount by clicking the Donate button on our website at reckoningradio.org. Or if you prefer, you can become a patron of The Reckoning at patreon.com slash reckoningradio. As a patron, you'll be able to access special programming, including interviews with scholars that haven't aired as part of our series. That's patreon.com slash reckoningradio. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or questions you might have about this series. You can use the contact link on our website at reckoningradio.org. While you're there, you can also find a detailed bibliography, free educational curricula for elementary, middle, and high school, and over 100 oral histories of formerly enslaved Kentuckians. That's reckoningradio.org. Thanks for listening.